0: to here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Compose Melbourne is back. Compose Melbourne, the sibling conference to the New York-based Compose Conference, is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 28th and 29th of August 2017 at RMIT in Melbourne, Australia, with presentations on August 28th and a an non-conference on the 29th. The keynote is by Andrew Sorensen, titled Silent Synthesis and the Computational Crucible. For more information, and to register, visit www.composeconference.org slash 2017 dash Melbourne. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration is open, and make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated. PWL Conf 2017 is the second full-day paper We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strangeloop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org. ElmConf is returning to St. Louis on September 28, 2017 for a day of learning, speaking, and connecting with the Elm language community. ElmConf will once again be co-locating with Strange Loop and the conference will run on Strange Loop's pre-conference day. For tickets and more information, visit www.elm-conf.us. OpenFSharp sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, OpenFSharp sharp features two days of F-Sharp talks with workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F-Sharp community and some of its key contributors, all while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. For more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. Rockycon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are the CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Wilbur, inventor of Minnie Cameron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at conracket Org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. CodeMesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margaret Seltzer are already confirmed. And the speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more information and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday, and an all-day open space on conference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join Jose Valim, Valenheim Renz, Philip Wadler, Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. And the last very early bird tickets are on sale. Get them while you still can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on October 1st and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal and your register, visit org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media. I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor. In this week with us, we have Dabashis Ghosh. Dabashis, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Proctor, for bringing me to this
1: program. I'm quite excited. I'm Debashish Ghosh. I have been a long-time programmer in the industry. I did my graduation in computer science long back. And since then, I started my life as a programmer. I programmed in various types of languages, starting from C, C++. At one point in time, I was doing lots of C++ programming and felt quite proud about it. Then I came to Java and started my usual journey to the land of enterprise Java, followed by some discoveries of the Spring and Hibernate type of things, and finally made my dive to the area of functional programming. I discovered Scala at a time when I was also programming in a polyglot fashion using stuff like Ruby and Python, but finally stuck onto Scala because of my love for static typing and Scala as a language appealed to me the most. And since the last seven, eight years, I have been doing Scala programming in my day-to-day job. And also, I am a uh, contributor to the open source area, and I have some open source projects going on for me. And Scala is my number one go-to language at this point in time. I'm a principal engineer with Lightbend, and there also I do programming using Scala and some of the big data frameworks like Spark, Hadoop, and some of the streaming engines like Flink or Kafka streams.
0: And you got to put on my radar from some of the functional domain modeling, functional reactive programming, and some other people recommending you in general saying, hey, yeah, whether or not it was direct or indirect, putting you on my radar is like, okay, I got to talk to Debashis about some of the stuff he's doing. So you start out in the C base languages, C, C++, you move to Java. What was that first experience like? And then you said you started doing Scala about seven to eight years ago. And you had a little bit of Ruby and Python and Polyglot. What were some of those transitions across those languages that set the stage for you when it was finally time to discover Scala?
1: Yeah. Actually, from C++ to Java, it was possibly an obvious kind of change because of the way the industry accepted the language Java. And at one point in time, I was doing a lot of C++ programming and felt myself to be a proud programmer of C++ template programming, C++ template metaprogramming. And then I discovered Java, and the natural course of the industry took me into the Java enterprise land. I was working in the industry, so Java EE was being adopted, and I worked for a couple of years using Java EE frameworks. And then suddenly I discovered Spring. That was also while I was working for a startup. And Spring and Hibernate took a lot of time from me over the next couple of years. I did lots of programming with Springs. And then I discovered Scala around 2007, 2008. And I think I wrote one of the earliest blog posts on Scala that was circa 2007 or so. Or maybe it was 2006. And the thing that appealed to me regarding Scala is the unification of object-oriented and functional programming. Prior to that, most of my exposures to functional programming was through the famous SICP book. And I did some programming in Scheme and got used to the functional paradigms. But with Scala, it was an entirely different experience because of static typing. And then I could rediscover some of the things, some of the advantages of using static typing in my programming environment. And how the compiler does most of the checking, how I need to write less of less tests and I could reason about my code. So one thing led to another. I started digging more into Scala and my main entry to functional programming in Scala was through this excellent library by Tony Morris, which is known as Scala Z. And since then, I have been working mostly on functional programming in Scala. I'm a big fan of pure functional programming. I also work part-time with Haskell, and with Scala, I'm mostly working on libraries like ScalaZ and CATS. And uh, to be honest, I can't imagine working in a Scala project without any of these two libraries.
0: And if you had the first exposure to functional programming through structure and interpretation of computer programs and some scheme, what was that foundation when you got that? Was that something coming from a C plus plus background? That was a dramatic shift. And aside from the types and the dynamics versus static typing, that transition there, and then when you came into Scala, was that something that you appreciated the functional side before and then being able to fit that into your Java background and the object-oriented? Or was there a big jump between what your scheme experience was and seeing it in Scala and recognizing the similarities And differences there when you got re-exposed to some of this functional programming and being applicable to something you were looking for. Actually, to be honest, my exposure to
1: Scheme and SICP was very early in my career. And it was mostly out of self-interest because in the industry at that point in time, I'm talking about early nineties or late nineties. Scheme was not an acceptable language in the industry. And it was mostly theoretical. And some of my pet projects were done in Scheme. So when I joined the C++ bandwagon, it was a completely different paradigm. I was working in C++ in a purely object-oriented fashion. But one thing resonated me when I discovered the C++ standard library, which came out pretty late in the language development cycle. Incidentally, the C++ standard library didn't have a single instance of subtyping. It was based completely on parametric polymorphism and C++ templates. That was something which I was surprised at, coming from an object-oriented background. And I could figure out that software could be developed in this way also, passing of functions. There was no support of higher-order functions in C++ at that point in time, but they could manage it using some structures and objects. So I was a bit amazed looking at the style of programming that was adopted for the C++ standard library. And then when I was in Java, Java also didn't have the support of higher order functions or functional programming, but we could emulate it through objects. So then when I found Scala, Scala was really the first time I got exposed to an industry, to a statically typed language, which supported higher order functions and first class functions. And I got the same taste from Python as well as Ruby. But Python and Ruby, none of them had static types. So I ultimately stuck to Scala, mostly because of static typing and functional programming. And, of course, a better object-oriented model from Java.
0: And if you did scheme early on and was missing that in the C++ and Java, I'm assuming that still resonated enough with you that you kind of knew the pain. And so when you saw it was available in Scala with types in the same way that you could start to do some of this stuff in Ruby or Python. There was a nice kind of feeling of relief because I'm assuming that if you knew this existed before, Java felt that much more painful to do some of these things with higher order functions that you could easily do before. Whereas a lot of people who might have grown up with Scala and discovered functional programming later, felt the pain but didn't know how bad that pain was because they never exposed to that. Were you in that camp where you were kind of begrudgingly like, this is enterprise, it's using it, but I still wish I could do the stuff that I remember from Scheme. And then when Scala came around, it was pretty much love at first sight. Yeah, actually, you are correct.
1: I was aware of higher order functions and the beauty of programming with higher order functions and first class functions. I missed them in C++ and Java. But what I thought is that, oh, Scheme never gets used in the industry. And in the industry, this is how you need to program using IntelliJ as one of the primary goals of your uh, goals to achieve the means so that you can generate lots of code and you don't use higher order functions. You have the getters and setters and you can use them, you can generate them. So I sort of accepted this paradigm as the mainstream programming technique. So it was really an aha moment for me when I discovered Scala and I found that, oh, this has the potential to become mainstream because Remember, I'm talking about Sarka 2007, 2008, when Scala was not a mainstream language. But it was a sort of uh, aha moment for me that I could rediscover some of the things which I found very interesting in Scheme and programming in the functional style. So yeah, it was an aha moment for me.
0: And we're going to touch on a number of these things. You set the stage for enjoying the types, and you mentioned Scala Z, Cats, Haskell. I'm sure we'll get to some of that a little bit later on in this conversation, but you've also had a lot of work with the functional domain modeling and functional reactive programming. And I know one of those things coming out of Java, because I did Java for a little bit, went into .NET and kind of dipped my toes back and forth in Java, but there was a lot of cross-pollination between those two communities about domain-driven design, a lot of these patterns and the like. So when you were discovering... Scala, was that around the same time that, for you, the domain modeling and the functional domain modeling started to coalesce as well? Or was that something that kind of evolved at a separate time? And what was that evolution between your finding the functional, finding the types and the functional types versus the domain modeling and some of these other enterprise patterns and how they kind of fit together in a functional world?
1: Yeah, I started working with the financial securities company. On their trading platform. Since 2002, 2003, we were developing a model for uh, trading and settlement systems for one of the largest investment banks of Japan. And there I came across this concept of domain modeling because I found that the domain model which they had was an extremely complicated one. And unless we have some form, some way to manage the domain model or modularize the domain model, it would be impossible to come up with a manageable system which can be maintained down the years. And it was at this point in time I came across this Eric Evans book on domain-driven design, and that was one other aha moment for me because I liked the book very much. I read through the entire book, and the most important thing which struck to me was the concept of a bounded context. At that point in time, I was not aware of functional programming in the industry. I was not doing functional programming also. But I came to the realization that in order to develop large systems, domain model is the core concept which you need to lay your most emphasis on. Domain model is possibly the most important artifact in the life cycle of a project which you need to take care of. And I was developing domain model as per Eric Ivan's book using the standard object-oriented way. It was much later down the line when I came across Scala and when I started digging more deep into the functional paradigms that Scala offered, the Scala Z language, CATS was not there at that point in time. I thought to myself that, hey, if I want to do this domain modeling in a functional way, then many of the incidental complexities might go away. For example, manual management of state. Every domain model has a concept of state and you need to manage them efficiently. And what more an effective way to manage state than through functional programming. You can really keep your model referentially transparent till the end of the world. And then you expose state to the user. So that was my introduction to domain modeling in a functional manner. And some of these thoughts led me to do some blogging. And at that point in time, Manning also got in touch with me and I started the book, DSLs in Action. Though the book was called DSLs in Action, it was mostly about domain modeling and how to take care of domain models. And it set the perfect tone for my second book as well, but we can discuss that later. But yeah, the functional programming, as far as domain modeling is concerned, the idea came to me when I was working in a complex domain model and I thought that, object-oriented techniques added a lot of incidental complexities while managing domain models. And functional programming, using some of the mathematical aspects of functional programming, like function composition and things like that, helped me a lot in conceiving how larger models should evolve from smaller ones.
0: And I figured the domain model aspect was probably early on, before the functional programming, given the timeline you mentioned of discovering Scala and then getting to use it. And As you found and started to adopt Scala and see it was actually getting adoption and that this has potential, you mentioned the state was one of the big things that simplified things. So more pure functions, less mutability, more control over when that mutability happens. And the types and people talking about modeling your domain with types and things like the Haskell or F-sharp or how that gets ported back to Scala Z and defining your constraints via types came later. What were some of those other early on views that started to establish why functional programming and domain modeling fits well? We covered state a little bit. What were some of those other things before you actually got further down the line into the Scala Z kind of libraries that you mentioned? When I
1: talk about functional programming and domain modeling, I always keep referring to this paper by John Hughes, which came out late 80s or early 90s, Why Functional Programming Matters. And right in the abstract of that paper, he mentions about two key aspects of functional programming, which leads to better modularity and compositionality of code base. One of them is lazy evaluation, and the other is higher order functions. Maybe I got the order wrong. He mentions higher order functions before lazy evaluation and these were some of the key understandings which i had when i got exposed to functional programming and when you consider a domain model what exactly is a domain model any non trivial domain model that you can think of is basically a union of a few bounded contexts i am using the term bounded context as per eric ivans book and if you now dig down into what exactly is a bounded context a bounded context is a composition of modules and each module has some contracts based on some types and functions and some domain rules. So we have domain behaviors, which are the domain functions. We have objects on various types. We have function composition. And using this composition, we can compose domain behaviors, smaller domain behaviors to lead into larger domain behaviors. And we have a set of business rules. So this is all we need in order to come up with a successful domain model. So the ultimate success of the domain model depends on how you can modularize these concepts, how you can compose these concepts into the bigger picture. And I found that functional programming is one of the key vehicles to do this because once you have pure functions which are referentially transparent, you can compose them without any fear, without any fear of side effects. And that's one of the key impacts that functional programming has. That you need to have your side effects decoupled from your pure business logic. So your functions become more testable, your model becomes more testable, and hence it can scale well, it can compose well. So that was my key understanding when I started my journey into the world of functional programming and domain modeling.
0: And then you mentioned the modularity, and per my understanding of bounded context from Eric Evans' book, that means I might have a customer, but if I'm in Finances, that's one thing. If I'm in order procurement, that's another thing. These modules play in to help establish the bounded context of what a customer means in one context versus customer in another context. Is that what you're referring to when you're talking about the modules helping you in the functional programming mindset?
1: Yeah, actually, a domain model is a union of bounded contexts. And the bounded context is a union of modules. So one bounded context can have multiple modules, but the ubiquitous language or the domain vocabulary has to remain uniform within one specific bounded context. It may differ. For example, if I'm developing a securities trading system, the term security has a definite vocabulary. It has a definite meaning within the bounded context of the security system. But when I'm developing a system that does authentication and authorization, their security has a completely different meaning. And that's what we mean by domain vocabulary. A domain vocabulary is uniform within a specific bounded context. So when you have a single bounded context and you are thinking in terms of that bounded context only, you can divide your logic in terms of various modules. And each module can have a group of related functions. So things sort of modularize naturally when you think in terms of functions. One of the things which hit me with object-oriented programming when I discovered functional programming is that in object-oriented programming, you usually couple functions along with state. It's not absolutely essential that you need to do so, but mainstream object-oriented programming languages work in that way. You have a class. Within the class, you have some state and you have a bunch of related functions. But it was always a question for me, what exactly should go inside this class or inside this object? They are often used to arise occasions when I was in sort of a dilemma, whether I should place this in this class or in this class. So these kinds of dilemmas never occur you when you are doing pure functional programming with modules. Your module is a collection of pure functions. And each of these functions does some part of domain behavior, implements a smaller domain behavior. And you can compose each of these functions to get into larger domain behaviors. So here, the modularity is much better, I think, as far as I think, when you are dealing with complex domain models.
0: And kind of aligning to the purity that you mentioned and the getters and setters and where things fall before, did you find, at least in the Java world, where there was a lot of these getter and setter methods that were just essentially accessors that people would be using? that it helped clean it up because now you're just passing the data around and it not having to worry about which parts encapsulated as well to make sure you get it in the right spot? Was that one of those things that kind of was bugging you before and then once you found the functional programming that transition made a little bit more sense because now your state's just your state and then their functions go as opposed to the In this case, am I hiding my state right versus am I exposing the right parts of the state versus am I doing a message passing with the object-oriented system in the larger enterprise Java ecosystem? Yeah,
1: exactly. In fact, generation of getters and setters using your IDE was one of the most dangerous practices which I found. It was sort of natural to us. The moment we design a class, we use the buttons across my IDE and generate getters and setters without even thinking that if I should generate the setters at all, because the generation of them was so easy and manually writing them was so painful that we used to generate all getters and setters. So the two things come out of this. Possibly you are exposing some state. Possibly you are exposing some mutable state by generating all the getters. You need not do that. And setters are even more evil in the sense that you are exposing your mutable state for more mutation by your external user. So these are some of the things which I refrain from when I move from object-oriented programming to functional programming. And yeah, using some things like the state monad, you carry state with you so that it's not accidentally mutated or this also makes writing concurrent programs easier. So yeah, state management was one of the things which we do much better in functional programming. And this is one of the important aspects in functional domain modeling as well.
0: And as you push down the Scala route, I know Scala kind of had a couple of philosophies to begin with. I think there's still a couple of philosophies out there today in the Scala world. Of Is this just a better Java with some other stuff? And I'm just using it in the way I might be adding Groovy or Guava on as libraries or languages versus the push down to using the stronger types which eventually led into these Scala Z cats kind of haskell-inspired libraries what was your track as you went down the scala route and evolved from kind of i can do some combine some functional programming and object oriented in the early days to having more type power that you were expressing and what was that transition like for you and when did that transition kind of set place in your time frame as well? I came from a Java background. I came
1: from an object-oriented background. So my initial reaction to Scala was definitely as a better Java. If a person comes to the Scala world or to the world of functional programming afresh and not from an object-oriented background, he or she may have a different take on this. But as far as I was concerned, I started looking at Scala as a better Java. In fact, in some of my early projects, which were Java-based, I started into Scala writing some tests, writing some unit tests using some of the Scala programming language. So my induction into Scala was as a better Java. And then I rediscovered some of the things which forced me to unlearn some of the things which I learned during object-oriented programming. That was a difficult phase because unknowingly you may be using some of the idioms which you learned in the Java programming language. For example, the Gang of Four Design Patterns book. Many of those patterns are built in as part of the Scala programming language. And you don't need to go through the ceremony of rediscovering these things using indirections on top of what Scala offers. But in the initial days of programming, I did some mistakes. I used to build some of the patterns explicitly following the Gang of Four book. But later, I came across a presentation by Peter Norvig regarding some of the functional patterns. And it was one more aha moment for me. When I discovered that many of those patterns, in fact, most of them are built in within a standard functional programming language. And Scala was one of them. So that dramatically changed the style of programming, which I did in Scala. And then going through the source code of Scala Z and trying to understand what Tony was doing there gave me my next aha moment. So, yeah, I came from Java background, but I got inducted into Scala using Scala by starting as a better Java, but now I think I've successfully unlearned many of the things which I learned during my Java days.
0: And what was the thing that took you from, I'm taking advantage of the built-in patterns that I don't have to write like I would from the Gang of Four pattern, because my language it actually supports these inherently, and I don't have to go write these, to discovering Scala Z, starting to dig in, and now having your kind of crisis of Having to really unlearn the things you learned and start to wrap your mind around the new way of thinking and pushing towards the more Haskell esque flavor of Scala versus the better Java. What was the first thing that kind of put that on your radar and how did that evolve to your use? Was that a slow transition? Were there certain things that put it on the radar first and then you started folding more in? Or is it one of those things as you looked, some other realization happened? So, what was the start of that? And how did that evolve?
1: Two of the design patterns that I was using mostly in my Java days were the strategy pattern and the bridge pattern. And it was this realization that both of these patterns are nothing but higher-order functions. This was the most important realization which I made from when I did the transition from uh, Java to Scala. So higher-order functions is an extremely powerful concept. And together with the fact that you can compose functions and write your entire program, write your entire business logic in the form of a single expression, which gets statically checked during compilation, was an important realization for me. So previously, I was implementing the strategy or the bridge pattern like the way it, it was recommended in the Gang Up for Book. But then when I came to the realization that it's simply higher-order functions, it made my life easier, made the code much more concise and succinct. And the very fact that I was doing idiomatic functional programming gave me lots of joy. So that, I guess, was the start of things, start of how the patterns, how the explicit object-oriented design patterns got melded into the mainstream functional programming language. That was an important realization for me.
0: And then at some point, you discover Z, and you said you started digging in and reading that library. What was that first place of your radar and how did you discover that? Was that just looking at some sort of news blog post and said, "Huh, this is interesting. I got to dig into this. Was this a reference of it's a good source of more idiomatic scala." We'll put that on the radar and made the transition from starting to use just the higher order functions in place of patterns to going down in the stricter type system that you get with Scala Z. Yeah,
1: Scala Z was the next level of transition for me because I used to regularly subscribe to the Scala user mailing list. And from there, I got the name Scala Z and I started looking into it. And to be honest, initially, I couldn't make any head or tail out of it, because the coding standard or the coding style of Scala Z is completely different from what was known at that point in time as idiomatic Scala. Incidentally, Scala is a language where it's very difficult to define the term idiomatic Scala, because people tend to program in various different styles. So it's very difficult to call what exactly you mean by idiomatic style, but the Scala Z style was completely different from what was prevalent in those days. It still is, I guess, and CATS is no exception. And as I dug deeper into the code base of Scala Z, I came to the realization that it's possibly the next level of functional programming transition that I need to get into because it deals a lot with the concept of algebraic design. And as I saw more and more of abstractions like the monads and the monoids, I came to appreciate these as the newer design patterns of functional programming. I call monoid a design pattern in functional programming. And I use monoid a lot these days. It's mainly because the contract gives you just an algebra. It doesn't speak anything about the implementation aspect of a monoid. So if I can make my code depend on an algebra instead of an implementation, in that case, I can make my code much more generic. So this led me to exploring into the world of parametricity, which is possibly one of the most important things that libraries like Scala Z is based on. By parametricity, I mean that I need to make my function parametric to the parameter, to the type parameter which it gets. And I should only use the generic type as my input. I should not use functions like two string or some of the abuses which you can do with the Scala type system. So if I refrain from doing these things, if I don't throw any exceptions, keep my code pure, specifically strict to the generic parameter type, then I can have a parametric code base which is much more reusable, much more generic than any concrete instance. In one of the recent blog posts, and I also mentioned this in my book, that I designed this MapReduce kind of an interface, which is nothing but an algebra, and it's based on parametric polymorphism. It takes a monoid as an argument. So the function is completely generic. And just by supplying different instances of the monoid, you can use it under different contexts. So here you get a clear separation of the abstraction along with the context. The abstraction is the algebra of the monoid. And the context is the specific instance of monoid which you supply to it. And MapReduce can be defined as a generic contract based on the algebra of a monoid and a foldable. Reduce is almost like a fold. So when I design a MapReduce program, when I design a contract for a MapReduce function, all I need is the capabilities of a foldable. I don't need to pass a list there or a vector there because a list or a vector is a much more powerful abstraction than a foldable. A foldable can only fold. And that's exactly what you need when you are doing a reduce. So this leads me to the next principle, which I try to adhere in my daily life of programming. Use the least powerful abstraction that applies to your use case. When I'm designing a MapReduce function, I take two things, a foldable and a monoid. And both of them are just algebra. And my implementations of these abstractions, implementations of these algebra, a foldable or a monoid, will give me a different sorts of MapReduce implementations under different context. I discussed this in my book, and I discussed this in one of the recent blog posts also, which I did.
0: And you mentioned talking about these types and being able to take in the monoids and foldables and the like. Yes. In Scala, how does that work? I know different languages have different ways that they handle this. Some of it's like peeking at Haskell. You actually define... The functor or the monoid and say, here's the contract that it adheres to. Here's the interface, like the API interface of here's the rules that this thing behaves. And then you derive that and you give those details per your type. Is that something that's mimicked in Scala? Is that just more reflectivity? Is there an interface? How does the world of Scala look like when you're saying, I take a monoid in? What does that mean in Scala terms that you're going to be taking in the foldable, the monoid, the functor, the monad? What is that in Scala term of how that is defined and specified that whatever you're taking in, the vector is foldable, the array is foldable? How does that work?
1: It's basically the same as in Haskell, except the syntax is a bit different. In Scala, you define the algebra in terms of a trait and you provide concrete implementations in the form of concrete classes and you pass them as implicit objects because implicit is one of the ways you can encode type classes in Scala. It's somewhat similar to Haskell though there are some differences but it's basically the concept is same whether you are defining a monoid or a monad or a foldable. At the algebraic level it's defined as a trait in Scala and you define concrete implementations. Suppose Let me talk a bit about the usage of these algebra and implementations in the context of domain models. Say, if we take the example of the domain model that I was working on with the securities thing going on, money, I had an abstraction called money. And if we squint hard, we can see that money is a monoid. So whenever I have a function that accumulates some money that does some computation on money, I can always define that function in terms of a monoid instead of hard coding the type as a money. Now, this gives me an advantage that I have the function which can be reused under different contexts, wherever I have a monoid. It's because the function is not hard-coded on money. I pass and I take an instance of the monoid, a concrete implementation of the monoid in a different context, in various contexts where I need to accumulate money. I pass in the monoid instance of money. If I pass in some different instance of the monoid, I get a different function. So the concept is basically the same as in Haskell. Only thing is that the difference in implementation because of the different syntax that Scala offers.
0: So you do really get the algebraic, and I'm kind of hesitant to use this word, interface, because that term gets overloaded and people interpret it to mean different things. But you say, I've got this contract, this interface that makes up a monoid or a foldable and then you say this is a trait and I do the specific stuff so that gets shared. Because I know some languages are like that. Caskell's one of those languages that fall into that, but some of the other ML family languages, F sharp I believe, doesn't quite have that you have to kind of say that, well I can take in something that has a map, but type check the fact that it has a map, and I don't get some of that trait reuse necessarily is my understanding. So Scala gives you that I've actually got something here and it can be applied generically then. Exactly. Explicit type checking is one of the evil things, I
1: think, to do in a generic program because in that case, my program, my function becomes explicitly dependent on that specific type. I don't do ease instance of kind of checks in my Scala program and I try to keep it as generic as possible. And that's one of the key things which I try to maintain in my code base, and that makes your code parametric, it makes your code generic, and reusable across various contexts. If I want to inject some context-specific information, I do that in terms of an algebra and some specific implementations of that context, as I was talking about with respect to Monoid. So my actual core logic doesn't depend on the fact that the thing that I'm passing to is a money. Because the only thing I deal with within that function is the property of the monoid. Possibly I'm using the binary associative operation that the monoid offers. So why do I need to hard code it explicitly in terms of the implementation of money? I can do it with the monoid abstraction. I can work at the algebraic level. So that's what I try to do.
0: And so with this context, you mentioned using the monoid and as a refresher, that's about the associativity of operations. So I can add money A and money B or money B and money A and becomes equivalent and some of those little rules. And it doesn't matter if it's money or not. And so you're talking about use that generic abstraction. What are some of those other things that after doing this for a while, after getting into Scala and doing Scala for seven or eight years, understanding the type system and coming to terms with Haskell? and Scala's and cats over the years what are some of those other tips that you would like to give to people to think about modeling in domains of as you mentioned don't depend on a generic specific type depend on as generic type as you can get away with the most constraining type what are some of those other things in the domain modeling from a functional side and from a type functional side that you would suggest people try to take away from this episode and We'll give them references to your books and some other stuff to find out more. But as that high-level stuff, what are some of those things you want to put out to people as, I guess, high-level bullet points so they know what they should be looking into? Yes. One of the interesting
1: side effects or one of the interesting impacts of following an algebraic design, designing using the likes of monoids and monads, is that these abstractions, monoids and monads, they are lawful abstractions. They honor a certain set of laws. And what you can do is if you base your functional domain model based on these abstractions, in that case, you may need to write a lot less tests because once you implement a monoid, the tests of monoidism, the test that this is a monoid is there as part of the tests of the laws that comes with the libraries. So I'll give you an example. Say you are implementing functions in terms of money and you have defined money in terms of a monoid. The tests for monoid laws, which you are doing through algebraic properties, the property-based testing, will take care of all the tests that you have when you are treating money as a monoid. So you need to write a lot less tests if you are making your design based on the algebra of these lawful abstractions. I blogged on this very recently, and I have it in my book also. That if you are following lawful abstractions, then you need to write a lot less tests than you'd have to do if you are working based on the concrete types. Because if you design, say, going back to the example of the MapReduce function, the MapReduce function takes a monoid and a foldable. So the test that you write for that MapReduce function will test whether the function honors all the laws that foldable and Monoid on us. So, those tests you do not need to replicate in all of the concrete implementations of the monoid or the foldable, which you have. So, that's an interesting advantage, and that's what I found very helpful when designing functional domain models.
0: And then you mentioned, and we'll just use the money as a continuing example, that if you squint, you see that it's a monoid, or it can be treated as a monoid in certain scenarios. Do you have any tips, recommendations, or other things that people should know to be able to help develop that perspective where you can say, oh, yes, a lot of the money stuff I need is associative, so then therefore it's a monoid, and it follows these rules, and how do you start to get a picture of these different algebraic types that you can start to then, say, be able to squint and apply to your domain model is there any tips and advice that you have for getting people to recognize some of these algebraic types that they can then start to coalesce and fit into form so they can use the generic abstractions i guess most of this thing comes from
1: experience and you need to squint hard at your existing code base In fact, in one of the upcoming conferences, I am talking about this pattern mining thing, how to look at a legacy code base and find out interesting algebraic patterns from that. And I don't think there's any shortcut to this. You need to keep in mind the algebra. And when you squint hard at the program, you examine the implementation of the function to find that if it can be transformed in terms of the generic contracts that any of these algebras may give you. So... I don't think there's any shortcut to this. It comes with experience and you need to squint hard and examine your current implementation to mine any of these patterns. But based on my recent experience, I'm sure you will be able to get quite a few of them if you look at a legacy code base and try to find them out. I myself have been able to do it in a couple of occasions that I did some audit for some legacy codebase and I had some experience of mining some of these patterns.
0: And you mentioned that upcoming talk, so I'm definitely going to have to keep an eye out for it because I think that's going to be one of those things that will be valuable to me is to be able to see some examples of, here's what we're seeing. If you squint, you see it meets this algebraic type, which has this contract, and that's what makes the algebraic type. So being able to see some examples and have you walk through that is definitely putting that talk on my radar to watch for when it comes out. We're getting towards the end of our time, so I want to make sure that – I'm sure I've got plenty of questions to ask you, but I want to take a pause. Is there anything that we haven't touched on in depth enough or that you would like to make mention that we haven't even talked about? Is there anything we want to go back and revisit? New things that have come to mind since we've talked? I want to give a brief pause so we make sure we can cover something important, but I've still got other questions if not. One thing I mentioned in passing
1: during the initial phases of the talk that I would like to reiterate is, this is also in the context of this pattern mining thing that we were talking about last, is that the first step is to identify an algebraic abstraction that fits the implementation of this function. And the next step will be to refine it so as to use the least powerful abstraction that fits the implementation. I'll give you an example. Suppose you go through an implementation of a function and you find out that there's a monadic pattern within it. You discover that it can be rephrased or re-implemented in terms of a monad. The next question you should ask is, can I do with a less powerful pattern than a monad? Because in my experience, many of the monadic applications which we do are really operations on applicatives. An applicative is a less powerful abstraction than a monad. So. The next step, once you discover that it can be phrased in terms of a monad, the next step will be to try and refine it in terms of, if you can, in terms of a lesser powerful abstraction, which is the applicative. So this is the other principle which I follow, that use the least powerful abstraction which fits your use case. It may not always be the monad. It can be an applicative also. So use an applicative when you can. And only when it's not an applicative and you need the power of a monad, Go for the higher power thing.
0: And we've mentioned monoid, we've mentioned monad, we've mentioned duplicative, kind of touched on foldable and functor. And when we talk about these algebraic types, do you have any good references? Because sometimes it's hard to find the good references that actually explain concisely and clearly what these contracts are that we should be looking for. There's the joke of once you understand what a monad is, you stop being able to explain a monad. Do your books cover this? Are there any good resources that you would point people to to be able to say, I guess before you start squinting at your legacy code base, you actually have to understand a fair amount of what the algebraic types are. Do you have any good resources that you'd point someone to to be able to start to develop this intuition and remembering of what functor versus applicative is versus a monad versus a monoid versus a profunctor and all these other terms that if you just try and go to Wikipedia, it can get hard to parse because you're half-talking programming, you're half-talking category theory from a mathematical perspective. Where would you point people to, to, I guess, start taking the first step on this? Yeah, one
1: of the interesting starting documents will be a document known as Type Classopedia. It's available on the internet. I forget the name of the person who designed it, but it gives you a very nice hierarchical view of all of these important type classes or the algebraic abstractions. And the other important reference will be, as far as Scala is concerned, will be the Functional Programming in Scala book by Runar Bierson and Paul Chiusano. That's possibly one of the most important functional programming books as far as Scala is concerned. And my book discusses all of these abstractions from the domain modeling point of view, how to apply these patterns when you are designing domain models. It keeps discussing them in the context of specific domain models when you need to apply these and what are the pitfalls of applying some of these patterns. So I would guess these three references will be the starting points for anyone trying to delve deep into the world of algebraic programming or algebraic data types.
0: And I know I've taken a look at some of that stuff myself and have gotten lost down, I guess, more the category theory terms and can easily get lost and not remember what are the actual just two or three basic laws from the algebraic perspective that this needs without having to pull in the rest of category theory. So I'm definitely going to be looking at the like the type classopedia and looking back at and trying to figure out from, need to go back and look at Renard's book and definitely your book now and seeing some of these patterns because whether or not you're in Scala, just being able to recognize some of these common abstractions, whether it's In a dynamic language or statically typed and strongly statically typed language of saying, well, if all I really depend on is something that implements map, whether that's defined as a functor trait or type class, or if it's just a functor just because it's a functor because it's a dynamic language, I think those are good references that I'll have to put on my list to go back and dig deeper into because whether or not you're following that, that higher level abstraction Sounds like a good thing. And I know Runar on his episode also mentioned that the more generic you lose power, but you also become more expressive because you're like, this is only what I'm doing against this. I'm only on an applicative or I'm only on a foldable, not a whole vector or array that I could be working against. Yes, exactly. And also check out for any of the presentations that runar
1: gives on similar topics, category theory or functional programming. He has this ability to make it more approachable to programmers. And I also sincerely believe that you don't need to have an uh, in-depth knowledge of category theory in order to do functional programming. There are instances where knowledge of category theory helps, but it's not an essential thing.
0: And that kind of reminds me of the thing I've seen with the Haskell pyramid of where people think you have to be productive in Haskell. And I would probably assume that the same holds true for Scala and the... Scala Z cats domains of you have to understand all this stuff before you can really be productive. And it sounds like you're reinforcing the fact that there are some basics that you know. And if you know these basics, if you just know what an applicative is or a monoid is, you can start to get pretty far because you've at least identified one abstraction that you can squint and go do your code archaeology against. Yes, you need to understand the contract of the
1: abstraction, what an applicative gives you, and how does it compose, how you can use the type system to compose it with other applicatives or other forms of abstraction. So that's the part you need to understand.
0: So we're getting close to our time, and I don't want to take too much more of your time today, but I want to give you the opportunity to plug anything else. We've kind of mentioned your books, but we'll give you a chance to explicitly name them Who's the publisher? Where to find it? You mentioned some upcoming conference talks. I know you've got a lot of talks in the past. People can go find that stuff and look at those past conferences as well. But other projects you're involved with, other things you want to make sure people know about. So your books, other projects you're involved with, upcoming conference talks to either see you in person at or watch for your videos and make sure they come out if they can't make it to the conference. What do you want to let people know about coming up?
1: Yeah, as far as my last book is concerned, it's titled Functional and Reactive Domain Modeling. It's published by Manning and it came out November last year. And so far, it has got quite good response from the market. So go check it out. And as far as the conferences are concerned, currently, I'm scheduled to do one functional programming conference. It's Functional Conf. It's in India, Bangalore, and it's possibly the largest functional programming conference in Asia. And this is, I think, the fourth year of the conference. And this year also, as the previous years, this year also we are, we are having a host of renowned speakers and the focus will entirely be on functional programming. And we are also co-hosting the Erlang track along with this Erlang and Elixir conference. And I'll be speaking there. I'll be speaking on uh, functional pattern mining. And the next talk that I'll be giving is in December in Scala Exchange, Skills Matter. And I'm one of the keynote speakers there. And I'll be talking about functional uh, domain modeling architectures, how to architect your functional domain model in a completely functional and reactive way. So that's one of the other talks that I'll be giving in December. So currently, I have these two talks scheduled. And uh, yeah, I guess that's all.
0: And you mentioned your DSLs book. I know it's a little bit older. Would you still recommend that as being good resources or do you feel that's gotten out of date with time has progressed that you would recommend that to people as another starting point?
1: Some of the basic concepts which I discuss in the book are still relevant, but the implementations are not. And because of the progress that has been made in almost all the languages discussed there, I think I would like to have a second edition for this book. In fact, when Manning approached me last time, they approached me for a second edition of that book. But what I told them is that area of programming languages and Scala has progressed so far that we should have a new title for this. And this is a logical segue. The next book, the functional and reactive domain modeling book is a logical segue to my earlier book. And as far as DSLs are concerned, yeah, the for my book, the basic concepts still hold good. But uh, as I mentioned, the implementations are not. They need to be rethought and uh, revamped in the context of the new developments which have taken place.
0: And that's what I wanted to check was how much of that foundational stuff was set in the DSL book that you said it was a transition to your functional domain modeling book. If those two were kind of isolated enough or if it made sense to go back to the DSL book, reference that as well. But keeping in mind that as you gave your warning of it needs a second edition Some of the stuff is there, but the foundations are there. So I wanted to make sure we at least covered that recommendation on your side and didn't leave people hanging out if you still thought it held relevance.
1: If some person decides to buy one book, I would recommend the latest one because it's updated and the two books are fairly independent. So it's not that the first one is a prerequisite of the second one because things have changed and the new book treats the entire subject from a different point of view. In DSLs in Action, it's not functional enough because it's a book based on polyglot languages. It discusses Ruby, Clojure, Groovy, and Scala, and and to some extent Java also. But the latest book is entirely on Scala. So if someone wishes to buy one book, then I would recommend him to buy my latest one, The Functional and Reactive Domain Modeling. It's almost a self-complete and independent reading. And it's not tied in any way to the knowledge that we got from the first one.
0: And that sounds good. I just want to make sure we weren't passing up an opportunity for you to plug that book if it was still applicable. So where are the best places for people to find you and keep up to date with what's going on? Where are the best online resources? You mentioned your site a couple times, and we can get that in the show notes. Are there any other places for people to track you down, follow you, keep up to date and keep you on their radar as you provide more knowledge if they are interested in this? functional domain architecture yeah i'm quite active on twitter my
1: twitter handle is debashish g so people can follow me on twitter besides that i have a blog also it's hosted on blogger and it's uh, g.blogpost.com. and for the last one or two years i was not very active in blogging i have recently picked up the tempo once again and i have started blogging once again so people can follow me up there as well I make occasional appearances in uh, conferences because staying in India, it's not always easy to attend uh, or talk in conferences in the U.S. or in Europe. But I do go there sometimes. And when I'm there, I can always talk to people. I love to have hallway conversations when I'm on conferences. And besides that, people can get in touch with me on email as well. My email ID is dghosh dghosh at dot A as in apple, C as in cat, M as in Mary. People can write me emails. I usually try to respond to them within a week. And yeah, but the most uh, convenient way will be to follow me on Twitter because my Twitter feed is almost exclusively technical and it deals a lot with functional programming and related things.
0: That sounds good, and I'll make sure you get all of those links in the show notes. So if anybody's out and about while they listen to this or doing something else, they can always come back to the show notes and find those links instead of trying to track down where we mentioned them in the episode. Sure. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, just for taking your time to join me today. Yeah, it was great. I don't think we managed to dig in deep enough, so I'm sure I'll have to get you back on and evaluate some of these concepts more because it sounds like we just started scratching the foundation of this, but definitely looking forward to some future talks that you've mentioned and would definitely love to have you on in the future at some point to expound on this more. Cause I think this is one of those things that people talk about, but don't necessarily get as much attention and examples as we probably should in the functional programming community versus what you hear about in the object oriented community and the power that some of these abstractions give you. So Thank you for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. It was great talking to you as
1: well. Looking forward to future episodes.
0: Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.